You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, Andrew and I discuss Lenin's state and revolution. And in the current events section, we're going to talk about the district attorney race in Philadelphia. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. So we're recording this current event section on May 24th. Last week, we were recording this main segment about state and revolution and on the topic of political determinism and the belief that changing individuals in power can fundamentally change things. We got to talking about the recent district attorney election here in Philadelphia for a progressive district attorney, Larry Krasner. And after we recorded the episode, Andrew and I thought that would actually be a good topic to talk about for the current events section as well. Uh, earlier in May, just two, a week ago, Philadelphia had its primary elections and the incumbent uh, district attorney, Larry Krasner, who is a sort of celebrated progressive district attorney who has promised to change a lot of things about mass incarceration in the city of Philadelphia um, and has become somewhat of a, a national figure as well and in, sort of encouraged a movement of progressives to run district attorney candidates in different cities. Um, he was up for a re-election, and the powers that be, the police union, the Fraternal Order of Police, and other forces in the city who were not happy about his politics, ran a campaign against him, ran, ran a primary challenge against him. Um, they selected a, uh, a man, Carlos Vega, who would have, would have been the first Latino district attorney in Philadelphia and ran him as a Democratic primary challenge. Let me just ask, so bring everybody up to speed here who don't know Philly politics. So a progressive wins the Democratic primary for district attorney in Philadelphia. What? Why is it such a big deal that a progressive wins the Democratic primary? There's also a general election coming up later. Right. Well, in Philadelphia, it's like uh, I think Democrats outnumber Republicans like seven to one or something like that. So if you win the Democratic primary, you pretty much are a shoe in to win the win the general election. Okay, let me ask another question. The Fraternal Order of Police backed an opposition candidate and that lost. How big a deal is that, that the Fraternal Order of Police didn't get its way? That's a really big deal. Traditionally, district attorneys court the endorsement of the Fraternal Order of Police. Uh, Larry Krasner made an enemy of the FOP when he ran uh, four years ago, and he's continued to have quite an abrasive relationship with the police department over the four years he's been uh, district, district attorney. So the FOP really went all out. They, there was a political action committee that got over for like $100,000 from the police union. Yeah, they ran all sorts of ads. The fraternal police, they ran ads encouraging Republicans to switch party affiliation to vote Democrat so they could unseat Krasner. And I think if this hadn't been in the era of the Black Lives Matter movement, if this had been 10 years ago, he there's no way that someone could have 
defeated the FOP in that sort of climate. But what happened is that Krasner, not only did he win his reelection, but he, he won by a landslide, a, a total landslide. So even though the FOP you know, brought out other guns, so to speak, spent a lot of money, people are writing their political obituary now in Philadelphia and saying that the era of their sort of unchecked political influence may be over. And how far back does that political influence go? I'm not a historian of Philadelphian police, but Philly, you know, is known for having a very violent and racist police force going back decades. We're the only city to have dropped a bomb on its own people. Uh, That was the move bombing where the city torched an entire block in a battle with black, uh, black nationalist activists. Frank Rizzo, the former police commander and also former mayor of Philadelphia, was a often is referred to as like a predecessor of Trump, and he was a very popular politician in Philly back in the day. You know, there's a city of Mumia, Abu Jamal. Who has always been very close to move the people that they dropped the bomb on. Yeah. So there's a real history of racism in the Philly Police Department, and, you know, not just in recent years, but going back for decades. The police union have not shied from criticizing Krasner all along. There was even an incident a couple years ago where after a policeman was shot and they tried to sort of blame Krasner for it and formed a barricade linking arms and wouldn't let him into a building. Um, And that made a lot of news. Yeah, this is something that happens. It's it's not particular to Philly. It happens in cities across the United States. So-called police unions have a lot of political power. They manage to get people elected to them that are friendly to them. And when they don't, they engage in these actions, uh, strikes, slowdowns on the job, uh, and they basically tie the hands of elected officials and force them to do the the bidding of of the the police union. That's happened in in New York with, uh, you know, our current now outgoing mayor was supposedly a progressive and he just learned that he had to do what the police union wanted. Yeah. So this this is pretty remarkable. I mean, you know, Krasner has has done a lot of things to anger the status quo in Philly, you know, and not that activists have any illusions that he, that this is like a panacea and there are a lot of criticisms from some of the left that, you know, his promises are really constrained by his p- position of he's still the district attorney, right? So as to prosecute criminals. But he's done a lot of things to really anchor the police. You know, he's he's fired, he fired like 31, I think, prosecutors when he first took office, including Vega, his primary opponent. But he has like a police accountability unit and they have keep a list of police officers who they won't, if they can't, they won't use for testimony in court because they're considered not reliable witnesses, having lied in the past. He's overturned wrongful convictions. He's um, refused to prosecute low-level drug possession and prostitution. He's ended cash bail for a lot of instances, although not totally. But the police, I think, really thought that they could use their old tactics. They ran a, a law and order campaign. Gun violence is really bad in Philadelphia and has been increasing every year for a while now. And during the pandemic, it really exploded. And people everywhere in the city are very concerned about gun violence, right? So the narrative was, look, he's letting criminals off. He's um, not making people afraid of the law. And so you got to get rid of this guy for our own good. And that was the campaign they ran. Very traditional law and order campaign. And it just failed. 
no one bought into it. He won by about a 30-point margin over Vega. Yeah. What what contributed to this victory? You mentioned the, the, the atmosphere the, of, of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. But is there anything else going on? Black people voting for him? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know— how, how, what, what percentage of, of the Philadelphia population is, is, is black? Philadelphia is 44% black, 35% white, 13% Latino, 7% Asian. Right. And one would suppose that, you know, Democratic voters, people voting in the Democratic primary are even more disproportionately black. So, right. you yeah. know, um, probably just if we don't know detailed statistics of who, who voted how, it would probably stand to reason that he could win, Krasner could win just on the strength of the black vote. Yeah. Assuming, um, you know, assuming things about voter turnout. Um, right. But voter turnout was very high in this primary, which is unusual for a primary. I think a lot of people just know that you can't blame the district attorney for crime. They know that this has been going on since before Larry Krasner took office. And so those arguments just don't work on people. That was one reason. Vega really tried to like make himself look like a progressive. You know, he was running like, I'm going to be a progressive just like Larry Krasner, but I'm also going to do something about crime. But I don't think people bought it. They realized it was disingenuous. People made a lot about the fact that the FOP in Philly a year or two ago were fraternizing with members of the Proud Boys at a social event. You know, there were these Proud Boys with Proud Boy t-shirts and stuff on at some FOP social event, and they were hanging out with the Proud Boys. And that made headlines. And when that happened, Krasner released a statement criticizing them. And that that state that really stuck. I mean, I heard Vega on the radio the week before the election being interviewed on uh, the NPR station locally, and the the interviewer Marty Moskowain straight up just asked him. She said, "You're endorsed by the FOP, and they were like hanging out with the Proud Boys last year. <laughs> you know, what do you think about that? You know?" And he had to like be on the spot and 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 answer that. The FOP endorsement really hurt his candidacy. Um, some people I've seen writing that you know if he just ran. Without the FOP endorsement, he might he probably would have done better. That's I, I tell you for for somebody who was born in Philadelphia, and you know has known about it over over the decades. T- to me, this is like uh, amazing that yeah. uh, that it's not just like the FOP doesn't get its way, but that it's a positive you know hindrance on somebody's candidacy. Yeah. And that might be uh, a matter of a new level of black consciousness, uh, you know, people feeling uh, either that they have to stand up and fight or energized by the recent successes of the movement for black lives. How much of it is, you know, a progressive turn in, in, in the white population and, and the Latino and, and, and other populations? I know I know that nobody knows, but what's your sense? Well, if you look at the the wards where Krasner won over Vega, I mean, all the predominantly black neighborhoods, Krasner won by a landslide. Krasner also won in the white neighborhoods that are more liberal white neighborhoods, Center City, West Philadelphia, Northwest Philly. I mean, those still have um, large black populations too, but they're maybe a little more majority white white wards. Those wards all went heavily for Krasner. Those are like their progressive white wards. And then the parts of the city that are sort of like the old Italian, South Philly neighborhoods, Kensington, which is like a poor white neighborhood, the upper Northeast, those places went for uh, Vega. So, you know, there's really like a a split in, in white people in Philadelphia, as there is everywhere in the country, right? 
Well, that's all the time we have for this current event section. Up next, uh, Andrew and I discuss state and revolution. For this main segment, we're going to be talking about State and Revolution by Lenin. Well, Andrew, it was your idea to talk about this today. So what were your main reasons? Well, I think it's one of the most important works in in, in Marxism. One of the prime contributions by Marxists after Marx. That doesn't mean I, you know, agree with every aspect of it. I, I, I don't agree with every aspect of it, but I think it's, it's path-breaking in some ways. It's a very serious uh, engagement with uh, Marx's thought and Lenin's thought. But the, the impetus, you know, why I suggested talking about it right now is somebody wrote to me about this book by... Uh, a council communist that was published, oh my God, 90 years ago or so, Jan Apple, talking about basically the economy under a council communist uh, understanding of the new society. So, uh, you know, somebody uh, asked me about Jan Apple's book, which uh, evidently has come out in a new edition. And my thinking is that I, I think what, what, what Apple did was extremely in, insufficient, wrongheaded, and that despite all of his disagreements with Bolshevism and so forth, the main insufficiencies in Apple's work flow from certain things in his conception that he shared with Lenin and the Bolsheviks and most of the people in the in the Second International who thought about economic questions. So it's like they disagree with one another, but they're, they're kind of opposite sides of the same coin. And I think the, 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 the coin is what's problematic. So rather than just discuss Apple, I think it's important to go back to looking at what was this conception of the capitalist economy, of an economy, uh, how that relates to state management. Because uh, my, my view is, is that there, there's just way too much political determinism, uh, whatever side you take. There's way too much political determinism in all of their, their conceptions. And that goes back even into a, a certain understanding of how the capitalist economy works, which I think, you know, is a wrongheaded way of understanding it. Right. So hopefully we'll get into those details as we sort of talk through state and revolution. But it's 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 like a counterpart to economic determinism, where the economic factors are in the driver's seat and they determine or set what the outcome is. Right. But you say there's there's too much political determinism in the sense that they think that the politics can determine the the economic structure of society. Yeah. Okay. Ba- ba- basically, you know, you make decisions and you implement them, and that's it. To use uh, Chairman Mao's famous phrase, politics and command, you, the idea that you can command an economy by means of uh, political decisions that, that you implement. So the whole set of issues then becomes uh, who's making the decisions, what are their priorities. When we talk about a, a capitalist economy like that, uh, it's very obvious what the problem is. Capitalist economies have their own economic laws, and despite the intentions of policymakers, those laws of capitalist production uh, assert themselves. You know, and if you do something contrary to the law, that you know that 
that that ends up hurting you. There are unintended consequences. Uh, this is something that the right wing continually says, and the social democrats and the, the reformists try to scoff at that and, and, and sweep the problems under the rug. But uh, it happens to be to, to be to be correct. I mean, as, as long as you've got an economy oriented to the production of value and you try to make things better for, you know, the workers by paying them more and improving working conditions and cutting working time. Well, that, all that stuff is costly and the, the consumers don't want to pay the higher costs. So what, what you're basically doing is telling people to go out of business. And within the, the laws of capitalism, th those, those are the, the alternatives. You either cut costs, work, uh, work the workers to the maximum, and are able to produce stuff competitively, or you go the opposite way and the, the company goes out of business. So that, that, that's what I mean by the, by the laws of capitalist production being in command and overriding, asserting themselves despite uh, good intentions and the priorities of the decision makers and who is making the decisions and the forms of decision making. So that, that, that's, that's the problem with the, the, the political determinism. Well, why don't we get into some of the main arguments of state and revolution and then maybe it'll become clear to listeners how this sort of political determinism is present and what Lenin's talking about. Yeah. So how would you characterize the main theme uh, and the main argument? Everything seems to flow from, from Lenin's argument that the, the state as we know it is a monopoly on the use of force uh, in a class society. It's something which the ruling class uses to keep itself in power, regardless of what kind of class society it is. Right. So it's not just that it's a monopoly of force, but the whole shtick of the state is that it uses the force to keep the power of the one class by suppressing the power of the other class. Right, right. So it's like an instrument of the ruling class to maintain its power. Over the other class, right. Over the other class, class right. Is. Yeah, yeah. People, people seem to sometimes think that, that, that this is like limited to breaking up demonstrations and, you know, like infiltrating the, the left or whatever it is. But it, it happens on a daily basis, even without any explicit violence. Mm -hmm, you know, right. I mean, there, there, there are laws that say you can't just take stuff, you know, and there are consequences if you yeah. do. So yeah. ba basically, there are laws that say that the, 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 the proletariat is at the mercy of the bourgeoisie. And there's a whole bureaucratic framework and regulations that structure all the social interactions so that the machinery of capitalism continues to function on a day-to-day -day basis. Like yeah. what? I think I know what you mean. Regulations of sure. industrial relations, regulations about how capitalists relate to each other, infrastructure, uh, controlling the, the money supply so that trade moves smoothly, uh, insuring banks, deposits, oh, yes. just all the yeah. basic things that are the, yeah. the framework of the economy are co coordinated in many ways through the state. Yeah. So, you know, Selena talks about like the state having a monopoly on violence, but he also talks about the bureaucratic machinery of the state. Right. So the argument is that this is not like a neutral political form, but it's something that is specific to class society and that the state we have in a capitalist society is a specifically capitalist kind of state. And so the role of socialists or communists is to 
seize the state and use that power to suppress the power of the bourgeoisie, the capitalist class. And then once a new mode of production, socialist or communist, excuse me, mode of production is established, the state will wither away because it no longer has, there's no longer a need for the suppression of one class over the other. The way you put it, because you're missing one piece of it, I think this is the, the conception that, that, that Lenin is concerned to uh, combat here because, because of one element that, that you didn't mention. Maybe you're about to mention it. Right, because the state is not neutral. It can't just be taken over. It has to be broken, crushed, transformed into something radically new uh, on the basis of a new mode of production. So, you know, I think a lot of people have heard the term smash the state. Well, smash is, you know, that's an alternative translation of the the conception of, of, of Marx that Lenin is recovering here. I mean, he's not just recovering it. He's he's trying to work it out and make it concrete in terms of how, how this can work. And he got he got a uh, an opportunity to at least tr- try to put this into into operation uh, shortly after finishing uh, the, the finished part of the, the, the pamphlet. And he's also directly engaging with what he sees as like a bastardization of <clears throat> Marx's ideas about the state by the Social Democrats right. and the European Social Democratic parties. Right. And, and also, you know, he's in, the, in, in Russia in 1917, prior to the Bolshevik Revolution, the October Revolution, they'd already had the, the February Revolution. So he's dealing with, you know, kind of like uh, a reformist or, or social democratic government mm-hmm. there uh, in, in, in Russia and what it's doing and what it's not doing. And this whole theory that the state is some sort of neutral mechanism that mediates among, between different classes and is kind of like over and above the contending forces in society. That's what he's dealing with. And it's, it's very detrimental to people's thinking because it, that it's among the things that's leading people to accept just like different people in charge of the same state apparatus uh, and not, you know, smashing the state power and moving forward. Let me, let me, let me say something. I think what Lenin does that's very innovative is to bring together the, the general writings about the, the theory of the state of, of put forward by Marx, and basically I think it's the same theory put forward by Engels, uh, and he brings that together with what Marx wrote about the Paris Commune. And, and Mar- Marx also drew the connection. I mean, you know, after the, the, the experience of the, the commune, Marx says, look, you know, since 1852, I've said that the power of the state has to be broken, you know, or smashed. And therefore, like in uh, the Communist Manifesto, he and Engels put a put a little, you know, introductory note and said some of the stuff that we wrote in, in 1848, the, the, the subsequent development of, of capitalism has made it such that this is outmoded, the, the things where you take this over and that, and he says the power of the state has to be broken. Okay, So so I think a lot of the really innovative part of, of the state and revolution by Lenin is to bring all of this together and then to say concretely, what does it mean break the, the, the state power because there are still administrative functions and what he's dealing with is not 
communism, the lower phase of communism, even, you know, what they call socialism, what he's dealing with is you have a, a, a political change in power. Okay, what gets done with respect to the state? Or do you just take it over? He's no, you don't just take it over. What has to happen is that the administration of public affairs has to be in the hands of the people and they have to be armed. And here's how you do it. And here's how you do it with people who've got no prior training in administration, you know, no management degrees, no political experience, uh, you know, in terms of that kind of politics. Here's how you draw the, the, the populace as a whole into managing its own affairs. This is what breaks the, the, the power of the state, the special bureaucracy and, and, and so forth. I think that, that it's very good stuff when applied to the issues of the state, not applied to the issues of uh, the economy. The short version of this is, is uh, something that uh, C.R. James coined a phrase that actually doesn't come from Lenin, but it, it comes from, uh, it's a, a summary of something he wrote, not in the state and revolution, but, but shortly thereafter, every cook shall govern. You know, so so that's the idea is, you know, and that evidently what was meant by cook is he used the term for a woman who cooks. So this was like lowly female cook. We're not talking about the top chefs here. So this is the idea is here is how you break the state as a repressive apparatus over the people. OK, and prepare the ground for socialism is you bring the people themselves into managing their own political affairs. It's not a hard idea, but I don't think it had been articulated before. You know, except that it's it's there when when Marx is 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 commenting on the experience of the commune. I think Lenin does a good job of bringing out Marx's method there and how you know Marx really let his thinking evolve based on the experience of the commune. It was like the first experience of a political form that was that could smash the the power of the bourgeois state and he drew from that example to start to think about what uh what what that would would mean in real terms and lenin has a good discussion of that in the text lenin has a lot to say about the state as an instrument of violence the police the standing army what lessons if any can we draw from this discussion about the struggle for black lives in the US today the struggle over police brutality defunding the police, and so on. Yeah, it's funny. I was just thinking about that as you were talking a minute ago. What? I was thinking about, uh, you know, here in Philadelphia, we just had a big election uh, for the district attorney. And we have this progressive district, district attorney who has been doing a lot to try to dismantle some of the repressive apparatus of incarceration in the city. And has done a lot of really good things. And uh, he was elected in 2017, Larry Krasner, he was up for re-election this year. The, so the Fraternal Order of Police funded a primary challenge against him. And so Krasner, the, the DA, won, and the, the police-backed candidate lost by, like, a landslide just uh, two days ago. So anyway, people in the city are thinking, you know, it's all in the, the zeitgeist right now. People are thinking about reform of the institutions um, of, of policing and criminal justice. But I was just thinking as you were talking about how limited even you know, you have you have like the right guy in charge of the DA's office, right? You couldn't ask for a better progressive DA. This guy's a he's a civil rights lawyer who's like sued the the police like forty times or something in his career. Um, but still, 
the real problems of like policing incarceration are not solved right now in Philadelphia. Right, right. We're we're going through the same thing in New York City right now. We have uh, an election coming up, and you know, among the positions uh, being voted on is is the district attorney, and there's like a lot in the Democratic primary. There's like eight or nine, ten uh, candidates, and the public defenders hmm. organization. You know, the the, the lawyers who defend indigent people who have no lawyers they're like well you know we're not going to endorse anybody because you know mm-hmm. basically the whole apparatus of, of of district attorney it's a repressive institution but here are the candidates who will do more harm and here are the candidates who will do the least harm and understand you know what it is to do harm and you know at, at the top of the list well, there are two candidates in, in particular, and one of them is herself a, a public defender, Eliza Orleans, and I just got a, you know, a brochure uh, in, in the mail, and she's got a, a, a picture of herself holding up a sign, probably at a BLM demonstration last year, a little handmade sign saying the system isn't broken, you know, it's been working the way it's supposed to work for 400 years. You know, so that's that's how she's running. And, and so the public defenders are saying, you know, she gets it. But given what a, a district attorney does and what it is to be a district attorney, all she can do is kind of mitigate the harm of uh, this this whole system. Yeah. It's sort of like cl- cl- trying to clean up after the mess yeah. a little bit. And she, I mean, she really gets it, this woman. Know, and there's another candidate who, who does as well, and these guys are saying, "Yeah, okay, you know, she would be the best, but we're not going to endorse anybody, right?" Yeah, interesting. You know, it's been interesting to watch here in Philly as Krasner has tried to follow through on his promises, and 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 you know, he's done a lot of good things, but uh, it's not like the system is fixed or something. Yeah, I mean, what this ultimately boils down to is. The district attorney and the police and all of these things are part of a system. These are interlocking interlocking parts that have to mesh with one another and they have to mesh with the rest of the society. What Lenin is talking about, I think, really like dovetails with the the kinds of issues we were uh, dealing with in in the last episode when we talked about uh, Minneapolis uh, and the Black Lives Matter and we had the, the, the guests uh, with us talking about that, it's there's a limit to how much you can reform the existing system, and ultimately, what you have to do is to break this state power and and the, the whole administrative apparatus uh, the, that that's part of it. And it, what Lenin is saying is that power has to be in the hands of the people. I mean, he's continually in this pamphlet contrasting the standing army, you know, a specialist standing army, you know, of the state, which is supposedly separate from the people, over and above the people, supposedly representing all of the people, whereas in fact it's <laughs> carrying out the, the wishes of one class over another class or other classes. Okay, you got all of that. What you have to have is the people policing themselves, you know, the armed populace policing itself. Uh, I, I think this is just extremely relevant to the, the questions that the movement is facing, you know, on a daily basis as we come up against the limits of reforming 
moving monies away from the, the police and so forth. I mean, all, ultimately, it, it's either them or us. And, and I mean, this is not a new idea. I mean, people have, have talked about it, uh, but in the current environment, I, I don't hear anybody really going there because, I mean, when you think about how threatening even to talk about defunding the police is or abolition of the police and shifting to more emphasis on social services, when you think about how all, all of that is already just like so threatening, brings out such a counter reaction to talk about communities controlling their, 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 themselves, that, that would be like, that, that just way too radical for a lot of people in the current moment. But, but I mean, you know, they, you have to have some regulation of, of behavior because there's all kinds of wackos out there, right? You know, you got spousal abuse, you have people murdering their friends and so forth. Uh, you got, you got all of that stuff and, and, you know, you're always going to have that. And, Societies have always, you know, like re- regulated themselves and 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 kept people from get, getting too far out of line. You got to have that, but you don't need a state to do it. You don't need a special force that's supposedly over and above society to do it. The society itself can do it, and the people can do it. But now we're not talking about the the capitalist state, right? And so it's it's big lift, yeah. So I feel like the first time I read State and Revolution, probably like 20 years ago, I yawned through the extensive quoting of Marx and Engels. I'm reading now, I totally understand what's going on here. Which is what? Well, Lenin isn't just trying to make an argument about the nature of the state and how revolutionaries should approach the state, but he's also trying to make an argument about reformism and the, the practices of the sort of opportunists as he regards them in the social democratic organizations who have done something very slippery and dangerous with Marx, that is to, to, to define where, where left ends with their position. You know, there's nothing to the left of their position. That's because they take Marx and to reinterpret Marx to paint themselves as the uh, inheritors of his tradition. And they, after doing that, sort of cancel out what he was actually saying about revolution and the state. So Lenin needs to go back through Marx and Engels and say, look, Marx wasn't saying that you just run for parliament and the state gradually withers away through a process of gradual reforms over time. Marx is saying you have to take over the state machinery, smash the state, you know, uh, suppress the power of the capitalist class, create something new. And so he goes through, and because, you know, people have been misappropriating these works of Marx and Engels and quoting them out of context, he needs to go through the text and say, and explain what the people have gotten wrong. Right. In, in particular, because there's a, a terminological uh, imprecision. It really has to, to, to do a lot of work because you got Engels saying, you know, there won't be a state. And then you have Marx referring to the state under communism. And and what, what, what Lenin is able to show is, uh, and he says this at one point, he says, look, there's no difference in views between Marx and, and, and Engels here. It's just terminology. When you read it in context, they're saying the same thing. And when Marx talks about the state, he at one point in the critique of the Gotha program, he says the state, or whatever you want to call it, the, some body that would 
perform functions similar to those that the current state uh, performs. So it's clear that it's not a state, but it would be the socialist analog to certain functions of the state uh, that, that exist in capitalism. So I, I thought Lenin did a, you know, a very good job uh, and you can only do that by by a detailed and painstaking, very deliberate uh, discussion of how the term state is used in this passage and that passage, what it refers to here, what it refers to there. Well, Andrew, you're not, Andrew, you're not a stranger to this type of writing. No, I'm not. And I'm sure a lot of people get bored and, and I'm sure a lot of people are like, you know, oh, this is just dogmatism and doctrinaire. But I mean, when you look at it, look at how much Lenin is able to accomplish by very careful reading and look how much he's able to communicate about what he's learned through careful reading by displaying that to the readers and taking them through it. Uh, I think it's just a masterpiece in that respect. Most people think, okay, you know, the way to be some some great intellectual is to be original, you know. And so people try to cover over uh, the sources of of their thinking, as if you know, no idea uh, it merits anything, you know, and it can't be said to be your thinking if there's any historical antecedents to it. And that is literally nuts. There, there is. There is no new thought that just emerges full-blown from, 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 from nothing. I mean, something always comes out of something, not out of nothing. And here you've got in the state and revolution, something coming out of something. And Lenin doesn't disguise that. And I, I think that this is, uh, I think it's a very productive method. Uh, I employ it. Uh, I know people don't like it, but I, I also think, you know, it, it's, like you were saying, it's the the only way to get at, like, if we want to understand, okay, Marx, and we under, want to understand, you know, Marx's theory of the state, not just on, in itself, but how it relates to the totality of his thinking. If we want to try to grasp what this guy's thinking was as a whole, you know, and not just this bit and that bit, but we really want to, like, get into his head, so to speak. This is the way you have to do it. Otherwise, you're just like in a, in a junkyard and, and, and scavenging, picking up this door handle and, and that part of a carburetor and stuff. And it, it's just not as good. Treating other people's ideas with respect and, and being very patient and careful with them, that is the, the, the way to go because thought builds on thought. It doesn't just spring from out of nothing. So we alluded to the fact that we're going to talk about the way Lenin discusses economic questions earlier in the interview. So let's get into some of that. Uh, you know, a lot of state and revolution is about political questions, but he does get into some economic stuff. In particular, he, he deals with the difference between capitalism and communism, as well as the move from capitalism to what Marx called the initial phase of communism, and Lenin often calls socialism, and the further development of communist society into a higher phase. So how, but how is all that related to his main argument about the state? I mean, first of all, you don't have either state or economy existing on its own. You've, you've got a, a certain form of economy, you've got a certain form of politics, and you have to understand what's the relationship between the two. Communism is understood as a society with a communist mode of production, that's the, the economy, but one in which there is no state. So that's the, 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 the politics of it. There, there is no state. So why is there no state? And I mean, Lenin 
draws out what's in Marx and, and, and Engels is that there is no state because since the state is a repressive apparatus, keeping down subordinate classes to keep the ruling classes in power, when you have a classless society, which is what communist society is, you know, every, everybody is just part of the people. Everybody is, you know, a worker unless like tired or can't work or something. You've got a classless society. There's no functions anymore for the state in that repressive sense to perform. You, there are no cl uh, subordinate classes, therefore no subordinate classes to keep down, therefore no need for a state. So this is all being rearticulated by Lenin, this relationship between the form of economy, classless society, classless economy, and the politics. Um, you know, but it's more complex than that because we've got the, the period of um, the, the seizure of uh, political power. What is its character? You know, Marx refers to that as uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat. You can understand the meaning of dictatorship better by, by reading Lenin here. It's not that it's undemocratic, but that it's every, every form of state is, is, is a dictatorship in the sense that the function of the state is to maintain the power of the ruling classes over the subordinate classes. So it's a, it's a dictatorship of the ruling classes over the subordinate classes. So you would still have that Right, Marx is, is is thinking prior to the first phase of a communist society, when you're you know just you've gotten rid of the political rule of capital, and you know you you're trying to establish the the initial phase of communism, in other words, socialism. Then what happens in the initial phase of communism, and then what happens in the in the higher phase of communism, and so Lenin is trying to say, look, in the lower phase of communism, you still don't have a situation where people can take everything without regard to what they contribute. In the, in the higher phase of uh, communism, it would be people uh, contributing without regard to what they receive and receiving without regard to what they contribute. That's the meaning of from each according to their abilities, each according to their needs. But in the lower phase of communism, we're definitely not there yet. So there's got to be some link between what you contribute and what you receive. And you need regulate that. So in that sense of state, the public regulation of how much people contribute, how much an individual contributes, how much they receive, you're still going to need that kind of thing. And so Lenin works that out. So a lot of what he says here, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with, but not everything. So in the period of transition before the lower phase of communism, there's a need for the dictatorship, the proletariat, in order to smash the power of the bourgeoisie and assure the survival of the revolution, etc. Then we have the lower phase of communism, in which there are certain administrative functions that are still necessary that have sort of an, an analog, maybe, to state functions. And then there's the higher phase of communism in which even those functions start to wither away, become less necessary. So, so what do you think about Lenin's treatment of the difference between capitalism and communism and the move from capitalism to communism? I think it's seriously flawed. And, and you know, I re to prepare for, for doing this, this episode, I, I looked again very carefully at the text this point, and it's very tricky because 
he doesn't say anything outright that I think is wrong. And he doesn't say anything that explicitly contradicts what Marx is saying. But way it's written is such that I'm not sure that he gets it. I'm not sure that his he was thinking the same way, for instance, that Marx was. And there's also a confusion having to do with the, with the language that, that he uses. Uh, Marx says there's the period of the revolutionary transformation of capitalism into communism. There's a period of revolutionary transformation. And he says to this corresponds uh, a political transition period in which the state can't be anything other than the, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Lenin refers to a transition from capitalism to communism. And I think Lenin is pretty clear that the lower phase of communism is a communist society without classes and without a state in the, in the in the proper sense. I think he's pretty clear on that. But there are passages in which he seems to be indicating that there is a repressive state apparatus in the lower phase of communism. And the, the problem is because he is not really clear in the way he refers to this, that has given rise over the, the decades to a theory that is like just the opposite of Marx's conception of the new society, the opposite of Marx's, in which, first of all, the lower phase of communism isn't communism because it's some supposedly other thing called socialism. And it's not just a matter of terminology. This is not a classless society. It's a transitional society in which you've got this repression of the capitalists by the, the working class. So you got like capitalism still in existence and supposedly you're somehow moving to communism, but you've got a repressive state apparatus. You've got classes still in existence and yet you're calling it a socialist society. I mean, that's just completely not, not what Marx was, was, was talking about. And let me just find you like, okay, so this is in Lenin's discussion, the section called the higher phase of communist society. He says, until the quote, higher phase of communism arrives, the socialists demand the strictest control by society and by the state over the measure of labor and the measure of consumption. But this control must start with the expropriation of the capitalists, with the establishment of workers' control over the capitalists, and must be exercised not by a state of bureaucrats, but by a state of armed workers. So that sort of seems to like conflate together a transitional period of revolutionary violence or force with um, the lower phase of communism. Bingo. That's, that's exactly the point. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that this is what he meant. It would be hard to think that this is what he meant because he says the opposite kind of uh, elsewhere in the text. But the only way of not reading it th that way is if he's just conflating two different things. And uh, the real upshot of that is to put off to the very distant future a real classless society, you know, and what we're really for, you know. By, by saying we've got a state and we've got all of this strict control over people in the lower phase of communism, the only way 
to understand Lenin not to be saying that is to put very heavy emphasis on the word start until the higher phase arrives, blah, 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 blah. But this control must start with the expropriation of the capitalists, with the establishment of workers' control. I mean, you could argue that he's saying, okay. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, what we got to do is start with this control, you know, and expropriates capitalists, establishes workers' control. Then we can have a classless society, you know, but we still need some of these control functions. That is not how Lenin has been understood. Okay, I think that that is probably what he meant, but it's so poorly written, and and that's this has given rise to basically continuing with capitalism with some promise. There's going to be a better future, which that gets called the transitional society, and that's like the, become the goal of all these people who call themselves socialists. They just want to take control of the, you know, existing economy and existing state apparatus, and you know, have the, them run it instead of the other people, and that's somehow socialism because they have some social democratic programs or they've got public ownership state ownership, but uh, classless society, no, 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 no. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. 
To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So Lenin's putting all the stress on the need for workers to control the economy. And specifically, he stresses the need for the whole of the armed population, as he calls it, to directly participate in control over production and distribution. And he argues that these are these are words that, that Brendan is quoting from from the same section. Control over production and distribution is what he says, and he argues that quote accounting and control by the armed workers is quote mainly what is needed for the proper functioning of the first phase of communist society. So, I mean, this gets into some of your main criticisms of of, of Lenin here. What do you think about this accounting and control stuff? I think it's nuts. Frankly, I, I should say I don't want to get into the whole thing, but the, the 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 use of the term accounting and control kind of like shifted over the years after this. Um, but it, first of all, it, it's nuts to say that accounting and control is the main thing needed for the proper functioning, you know, of of an economy. When you think about economic problems, how often do you think of accounting problems? Right. When where do you read uh, in the news? about like, oh, we've got all these economic problems because <laughs> of bad accounting. <laughs> no, no, no. The, the, the economic problems are, are elsewhere. But this is not just like some gratuitous, stupid thing that, that Lenin is saying. It's built on a certain understanding of the economy. And it's, in my view, a totally wrong understanding of the economy that leads him into this. L- let me try to lay out what what the economic theory is. Right, I'm going to read from the State and Revolution. He says, We, the workers, shall organize large-scale production on the basis of what capitalism has already created, backed up by the state power of the armed workers. A witty German social democrat, Lenin continues, of the 70s of the last century, that's the 1870s, called the Postal Service an example of the socialist economic system. This is very true. At the present, the Postal Service is a state capitalist monopoly, but the mechanism of social management is here already to hand. Once we have overthrown the capitalists, we shall have a splendidly equipped mechanism which can very well be set going by the United Workers themselves to organize the whole economy on the lines of the Postal Service so that the technicians, foremen, and accountants, as well as all officials, shall receive salaries no higher than a, quote, workman's wage, all under the control and leadership of the armed proletariat. That is our immediate aim. Well, so basically the the problem is just taking over the administrative apparatus of the corporations or the capitalist enterprises. Combining them into one one big super monopoly, okay, further monopolizing everything. But the idea is, yeah, Everything has become so monopolized so that it's already, in essence, in in capitalism, organized in itself. And it's just a question of who's controlling it, not the way it's organized. So it's all really internally organized anyway. And all you need to do is 
further organize it, you know, put all of the, the, the monopolies and oligopolies into one gigantic national trust and take it over. So basically the, the forms themselves are neutral and it's just a matter of taking them over and paying people workmen's wages. That's it. He talks about a mechanism. The, the, the conception is that the, the economic forms are neutral and therefore they just need to be taken over because the capitalists use them in one way, we can use them in a different way. They have no inherent class character. There's no inherent class character to capitalist monopoly. What, what's the weirdest, and I, I keep trying to get my head around that, what's the weirdest part is here is a man recovering after decades the Marxist theory of the state, saying that the state is not neutral. It's an instrument of repression. It has to not be taken over. It has to be broken. And when it comes to the economy, oh, well, that's neutral. Okay. That just needs to be taken over. The, the, the purpose of production seems to have nothing to do with the way production is organized. It's mind-boggling, the, the, the gap there. Okay, but, but Lenin did not make up this view of capitalism having already like abolished competition and they thought that competition was the sine qua non of capitalism. Capitalism is already abolishing cap, uh, competition, therefore it's already morphing into socialism and on its own it's therefore, you know, kind of building socialism but it's not uh, explicit because uh, there's still private property and ownership. So we just need to take it over. That was the theory. And it leads to such absurdities as socialism is, is, is the, the postal service. I always say, like, Lenin was not familiar with the phrase going postal. You know, work relations in the post office were not uh, the speed up and all that. It was, was obviously not so terrible back then as it has been in the United States in, in recent dec decades. The, the, the fact that workers go postal has to do with the speed up. And, 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 and that is like just one thing that like should just like tell us no, even, even when, the, the, you know, it's public or, you know, quasi-governmental, the capitalist priorities of producing the maximum and pay, paying the workers, you know, the minimum. The, the, the post office is capitalist. You know, it's built along capitalist lines, and, and there's there's no nothing neutral about this. But but even apart from that, this whole idea that an economy can be thought of as a company, and that the ways in which one manages a single company are the ways that one can manage an economy, you know, by accounting and control. I, I find that like mind-boggling and, and, and just incredibly naive. You, you, ha you have to deal with issues of incentives. You have to deal with issues of coordination. I mean, even if you have one gigantic monopoly, you've got things produced in one place that are inputs, you know, supplies for something produced elsewhere. And there's, there's a tremendous coordination issue. And you, you you can't you can't just manage this by by accounting. There there are there are decisions, there are trade-offs, there are incentives, there are priorities, and so it's not just a, a matter of crunching numbers. Yeah, and when the Bolsheviks 
right, in terms of serious coordination problems early on anyway. Yeah, they, they, they had tremendous economic disruption because the supplies were being kept from them. You know, they were being uh, hoarded, they were being uh, destroyed and, and, and so forth in the midst of the, the Civil War. So anyway, we can't do a whole history of the Bolsheviks and the, their economic coordination problems as their thinking evolved along different lines. But I mean, would you, are, 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 it seems like you're suggesting, though, that this naivete about the ease of coordinating economic relations um, along non-capitalist lines was maybe a contributing factor to some of the problems they encountered? Um, I don't know if it was a contributing factor Directly. What I know is that they didn't see it coming, and so they were not prepared for what to do. If I mean, if you had a different mindset, you would say there are all these different sites of production, and there needs to be coordination of them. And you wouldn't immediately turn to the issue of, okay, well, we, we, we just uh, suppress the capitalists, and, and, and that solves the problem. Because it, it doesn't. You, you would think about the issue in an entirely different way. I mean, yes, they were, they were facing sabotage and all kinds of problems it, during the Civil War. But, but even, even thereafter, they faced tremendous uh, issues of, of, of coordination that they had not understood at all. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, they never, they never really got control during Lenin's uh, life. They never got any real control over the, the, the economy. You know, but but I mean, it's like how can how can somebody understand that you need to smash the state, without understanding that you need to smash capitalist production, capitalist priorities, the self-expansion of value as 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 the motive force, and that the the existing economy is all built around that. You know, if you understand that you don't can't just take over the state, how? What is preventing somebody like Lenin from understanding you can't just take over the capitalist economy? It's this idea based on a, a superficial, I think, reading of Marx. It's stuff that he, he kind of said, kind of said that capitalism is abolishing competition. And this is the socialization of the capitalist mode of production within the capitalist mode of production itself. Yeah, that all comes from Marx. But, but the, the, the error comes when they begin to think that what is – in, you know, characteristically capitalist, what's the defining feature of capitalism is competition, so that this monopolization is, in some sense, really socialism instead of a harbinger of a different socialist future. This, this idea that by getting rid of competition, so-called, in the form of monopoly, which doesn't really get rid of competition, and Lenin knew that. But that was the social democratic conception. That was like Hilferding's conception, is... is Capitalism is transforming by itself into its opposite, and so all we need to do is take over. That That's the core of the problem here. This theory that Lenin inherited, that he, he just kind of takes for granted as the basis for his stuff about – you know all kinds of good stuff about the the, the armed workers taking over, and and uh, you know so what you what you then get with people like the Council Communists is well these people really don't have the workers taking over, and the way they do accounting and control Jan Apple is not on the basis of strict accounting on the basis of average labor time, but it's all disputes on the same conceptual foundation without any real understanding of of 
what real economic problems are, how they differ from accounting problems, how you're not dealing with the, the, the issues of what really needs to be changed to break from capitalism by means of accounting. You're just begging all the, 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 the real questions. But, you know, Jan Apple doesn't see it. And so many people have not seen it because they, they either are just not aware of these issues because they never really thought about what an economy is or, or you know, they, they've read Hilferding and the other people that, that, that Lenin read and they, they think that you, you just take over this, this foundation that the capitalism is already built and uh, socialism is, is one gigantic postal service. And Andrew, if people wanted to read anything you have written about this topic, what would they look at? I've got a new article. Actually, it's based on something I wrote 15 years ago. But I've got a new article in uh, with sober senses um, that's that's largely about this. And, and that article is called "Why No Call to Smash Capitalist Production in Lenin's State and Revolution." You can find that on MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 